In a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who said? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously you moron, we both do. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I better sew her a new one. What a sentence, and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, Watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, we got another edition of Lunatic Fringe into the void with the fucking pilot. Once again, I'm in the can, and once again via Skype, I've got a couple of people to chat with about some really cool shit in the sport. So uh, tell me, who the fuck are you guys? This is uh, Matt Gertis from Squirrel. And Mike Steen. From Squirrel. From So, so what the hell is a squirrel for those that aren't in uh, into uh, skydiving or anything like that? We make wingsuits and equipment for base jumping and skydiving. So wingsuits, that's the craziness flying down mountains and the shit Matt, that uh, Nick and Matt Munting were with me talking about. Exactly. Yeah, those guys are prime examples of <sighs> all the amazing things you can do in a wingsuit for sure. I'll tell you what, uh, coming from uh, somebody who knows next to nothing about um, actual wingsuiting and, and having seen its progression only from a distance, I'm continuously amazed at how quick everything's progressed and, and the way things, uh, the things that guys are able to do, guys and girls are able to do. Um, but uh, to back it up a bit, uh, obviously you didn't just start off in the sport to um, having people flying down mountains. How'd you guys get started in skydiving in the first place? Oh, um, you know, it was one of those things for me personally, for Matt, it, I saw it and just knew immediately that I wanted to do it. It wasn't like, oh, that's interesting. I might be into that. It was, it was more like, holy shit, that's exactly what I want to do. And, and what I initially saw was base jumping. So, um, that's the whole reason that I got into the sport. It was base jumping that brought me to it. And, and back then it was a paper photo that somebody showed me of Frank Gambale jumping through the steel at the Auburn bridge. And, uh, wow. I was just like, fuck, you can do that? You can jump off of something with a parachute? Well, and to see that picture, I mean, he was one of the original ballers, man. Yeah, for sure. I was in Tahoe at the time. I was skiing mostly back then. And uh, 
somebody showed me that photo and I was just like, dude, <laughs> it took me a few years to get the time and money together. But um, yeah, that's, that's, that's why I started. Nice, nice. Uh, yeah, I was much older than that. I, I started because of old, horrible movies like Drop Zone and Point Break. And, you know, <laughs> a couple of classics there for sure. Yeah, man. I know a lot of people that got started that way, but those are maybe the new Point Break. And, and well, I suppose the new Point Break has got a lot more to do with the kind of flying that you guys do. Yeah, yeah. They've got some wingsuit scenes in there and base jumping. So it's uh, definitely a little more more relevant to what we do here at Squirrel. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, so you, you decided that you, you wanted to start skydiving because you saw the, the picture of Frank making a, a sick base jump. Um, and did you just go out to, was there a local drop zone? You just went out and, and learned how and, and started flicking shit or, or what was your progression? So like I, I scraped together a little bit of money for an AFF jump and did my first AFF jump at Paris actually not long after that. And then, um, that was all the money I had. So went back to normal life, which was mainly paragliding and skiing. And then um, a couple years later, I was paragliding a lot with my buddy Jimmy Hall. And, you know, we're, we're sitting around. We're actually packing paragliders into a D-bag for some shit we were doing in France. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, man, later this summer, I'm going to base jump off the Eiger. And I was <laughs> like, what? Like, you can do that? You can fucking parachute off of the Iger. I was like, can I come? And he's like, yeah, dude, you just, you got to learn to skydive first. And then, uh, then yeah, like we'll, we'll totally do it. And so <laughs> at that point I did have like a little bit more cash, I guess, you know, I was living in a car in France and wow. raced down to actually I was, it was actually a funny story. I was driving to Po to take an AFF course there because supposedly it was the cheapest in France. And then on my way to Po, I literally drove by Tellard and at Tellard, I saw all these like skydiving wind blades and wind socks and parachutes landing. And I was like, well, this place seems closer. And I pulled over, walked in and did my first or my second AFF jump. So I basically restarted the AFF course with, uh, yeah. with one of their local instructors. And that was wow. it. So your first AFF jump in Paris Valley and your second one is in France. Yeah. Tellard, France. And then, uh, after those, I did seven jumps, obviously for the AFF course, a few more, I think I had 11 skydives when I left. And they're like, cool. So where are you going? And I was like, uh, louder running. She's <laughs> like, what the fuck? I was like, see ya. So you were absolutely a fucking nightmare from an AFF instructor's point of view. <laughs> you did absolutely everything we pray our students aren't going to do. Pretty much couldn't have been worse. I mean, the, the guy, Kevin Hardwick, my AFF instructor, is a wonderful guy. Um, he was you know, relatively understanding. He'd taken people for their first base jumps off of Brento with skydive gear back in the day. So, you know, he understood. And I had a pretty solid paragliding background. So flying with parachute wasn't really an issue. And mm. I mean, of course, it's stupid, but, you know, I lucked my way through it. Wow. Enough. What about steam machine? <laughs> um, well, I started skydiving in uh, 2003, 2004, <clears throat> and it was just kind of on a whim. I was already a, a paragliding instructor and um, speed flying pilot and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, just went out and did my FF in a day at Lake Wales. And then I didn't do anything for about the next probably six to eight months. And, um, I actually came across JT Holmes in a wingsuit at our local drop zone. Cause I was there for some paragliding and speed flying stuff. And I saw his wingsuit and I was like, dude, I, I want to do that. And <laughs> He was like, well, you should probably do jump number eight, nine, ten, and uh, and so on. So um, I did enough jumps to uh, get my first wingsuit, and then uh, I guess the rest is history. How many jumps was that? <laughs> uh, well, of course it was 200. Of course. Of course. Uh, God, you guys were both fucking nightmares. Yeah. Do as oh. I say, not as I do, I guess, is the Yeah, whole no shit. When I was uh, I was uh, an AFF instructor out at Skydance in Davis, California for a while, and we had a bunch of guys come out uh, that we none of us knew them, but they were known as the Stone Monkeys in Yosemite, and these guys were world-class rock climbers, uh, one of whom is a guy by the name of Ammon McNeely. Uh, and we taught them how to skydive, and halfway through the course, they tell us that the only reason that they're trying to learn how to skydive is so they can jump off all the shit that they're climbing. Um, and, of course... We're all horrified at that and trying to tell them, no, no, skydiving's plenty extreme for now. Just stick with this. And, of course, they all went and jumped off the of shit. So they were ex did exactly the same thing, and we were fucking horrified. 
yeah, well, obviously, that this this podcast gets dragged up in some future lawsuit and used as evidence. <laughs> right. So we should state that Mike and I definitely learned from our rapid and irresponsible progression, and we have a completely different outlook on the sport now. Absolutely. As I say the exact same thing in almost every article or in, in the start of my book, I flat out say if it was illegal and I can still be held accountable, I made that shit up. <laughs> <laughs> It didn't happen. Well, so obviously everything, uh, you know, worked out for the most part, but uh, any sketchy stuff? I mean, you guys kind of went balls to the walls right out of the gate. I mean, that's that, that's pretty hardcore. I think that anybody who's been in the sport for more than 10 years, especially the sport of base jumping, is only alive because they were a little bit lucky. Probably mm-hmm. more than once, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know anybody that hasn't had close calls. In the, I don't even know if mine are exciting or even noteworthy, but... I think that well, a lot of times people in base jumping don't give luck enough credit. They start to think that they're alive still because they're so fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I suppose I can see that. And I, I'm coming completely from uh, from the outside on, on that aspect of the sport. So for me, uh, what I'm sure you consider a bit of a banal story is probably pretty intense for me because uh, I've never made a base jump, never will. Uh, I appreciate the hell out of it, but I think probably one of the reasons that I'm such a fan of it and in such awe of it is because I know I, I you're never going to find me standing at an exit point. So it's all impressive to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's impressive. It's stupid. It's wonderful. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, come on. Some of the best things in, in life are fucking ridiculous that you just yeah. shouldn't have done. You know, I mean, some of the stupidest things I've ever done turned out to be the best. Yeah. So first base jumps for both of you guys. Uh, Twin Falls, 2005, I guess it would have been somewhere in there. 2000, yeah, 2005, 2006, and uh, yeah, it was it was pretty mellow. I mean, at that point, I had you know thousands of hours of paragliding time and speed flying time and even, you know, some, uh, flying skydiving canopies and base canopies, ground launching mm. them, that sort of thing. So, you know, the, the fear wasn't like the landing or flying a pattern. It was like, Whoa, this, this thing better open. And I'll like, <laughs> all I needed to do is land it. So for me, it was, it was pretty quick after that. Right. Because all of the, uh, sort of pieces to the puzzle, most were there. It was just learning how to pack and you know, how to not screw up an exit. So sure. Well, it sounds like both you guys had a shitload of time under the nylon for sure. Yeah. Flying the parachute was definitely the easy part compared to paragliders, you know, base jumping canopy at least are just, you know, they're kind of a joke. So yeah, that was cool. You guys kind of were backwards with the whole thing. I mean, (laughs) all the time under a much more complex wing and then, and then backing down to a more basic one with a, with a base canopy. And I'm assuming this is all base specific stuff that you were jumping. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that point in my skydiving career, the number of skydives and the experience was, you know, the, the only reason I was putting in that time was to, be able to have enough jumps to fly a wingsuit off something and deploy a, a base canopy. So that was that was the goal and the mission, and that was very clear for me from from day one. Wow! So not not a huge uh, skydiving career for either of you. Is it something you guys have ever done much of for fun? Yeah, my my whole outlook on jumping and you know where I spend my time has changed completely over the past like six to seven years and. Now skydiving is kind of my main thing. Um, I really, I mean, I've been skydiving for 15 plus years, but I say pretty regularly that I didn't really learn how to do it until I moved to Seattle and started jumping at Kapowson. Okay. And with the Farringtons. Um, I definitely, you know, I was a relatively accomplished wingsuit base jumper when I showed up there, but I realized after my first jump with Andy Farrington that I actually didn't know how to fly a wingsuit. <laughs> wow. And this so, is after after uh, a whole lot of wingsuit base jumps. That must have well, been a bit of a reality check, huh? It was. Yeah, I mean, actually, Squirrel had already been started at that point. We designed wingsuits for wingsuit base jumping. And, you know, I mean, obviously, when I say that I didn't know how to fly a wingsuit, that could be a slight exaggeration, but it's true compared to the way that Andy was flying. And that kind of, that shifted, you know, everything about how we looked at flying, how we designed suits, you know, what we designed suits for, et cetera. And I'm pretty well, thankful. Was, and 
what do you contribute that to? How come uh, he was able to to pull off things that you hadn't yet uh, discovered? It was more about like, I mean, you could say that it's like a style of flying where it's just, you know, priorities. Andy, his whole style of flying was just to go as fast as possible, as far as possible, to be as efficient as possible in every movement and, um, yeah, and to fly at all angles. And coming from base jumping, all we ever really did was, you know, exit the cliff, maybe make a few turns and burn a line down a mountain. So our priorities were having a suit that was stable um, when you're flying steeper angles. Okay. And that doesn't necessarily mean lower angle of attack because back then we would fly a, a steep glide path at high AOA. Um, that's changed. And, you know, a clean pull, you know, a, a suit that's easy to separate from the train a little bit so you have, you know, more margin for the deployment and stuff like that. And sure. You know, we, we weren't concerned with overall top speed or efficiency or, you know, ease of transitions, flare power, all that stuff we discovered through skydiving more and particularly through skydiving with Andy. So yeah, now, definitely. That, that's, I'm sure that's uh, partially because of uh, obviously his different take on it, but I would imagine it's also just the amount of time that you've got in free fall to play around with it as opposed to having to deal with terrain and the shorter flight times. Yeah, you could say that, but I, well, in our experience, you know, a lot of people, if, if you aren't, shown another way you can do the same thing for 500 skydives right like you can oh yeah boat around by yourself kind of flying inefficiently and i would say badly over and over again and, and be that guy who's like i have 500 skydives i have 500 weeks of skydives i know what the fuck i'm doing it's like well right doing one thing one way for 500 jumps you know that means something but it doesn't mean that you know you're awesome right yeah. and i think it's a lot of base jumpers fell into that trap early on is, you know, it, skydiving for us at that point wasn't fun because it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with the goal. You know, as long as you could jump out of an airplane, fly your wingsuit, deploy cleanly, then it was like, okay, I can go base jump this thing and I'm done with skydiving. And since then, obviously the sport has changed a lot, but also, you know, I've personally learned that skydiving is a lot more fun, right? You can, you can be flying close to your buddies. You have a lot more time in free fall, like you said, but it's also a good time to, you know, sort of go back and do those belly jumps, learn how to free fly, do some tunnel time. Like all of that adds up to being a great wingsuit pilot. It's not just about flying your wingsuit. So I think that's where, you know, obviously Andy came from with at that point, probably 15, 10, 15,000 jumps doing mm. other things than flying wingsuits. And, and that's why he's such a good pilot, right? He understands sure. how to fly his body, his canopy, his wingsuit, and his airplanes. So, Well, that's one of the things that uh, Munting and Nick brought up was that uh, um, one of the reasons that they've been able to excel and do as well as they have both in the tracking suits and in the wingsuits was that they both came from a background where they'd done every other type of flying uh, for Matt, of course, a whole lot of tunnel stuff, and uh, um, they said that learning to fly in every orientation, head up, head down, and and uh, on their bellies, on their backs, um, really dug them out of a few holes that they'd put in, put themselves into, and and uh, um, taught them that those skills translate very directly into wingsuit flying. That's super cool. Well, now, so how did you get around to deciding you were going to build your own suit? I mean, that's that in itself is pretty ballsy. I mean, the the guy that basically started the whole wingsuit thing died under one of his own creations because he made a mistake. So it's pretty gutsy. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> when, when I say for sure, I mean that the pioneers were gutsy. I think much gutsier than uh, than you know, modern day industry people. Since I'm hmm. not going to refer to anybody <laughs> necessarily these days. But, um, you know, it, it got to the point where I was wingsuit base jumping a lot and I liked the gear I was jumping, but I'd had some negative experiences with it, some experiences that I thought were the result of, you know, I don't want to say design flaws, but I, I felt like the gear could be better. I gave sure. feedback to the people who were making the gear and, uh, you know, didn't really get anywhere with that feedback. and. And I got to the point where, hey, like I, I don't feel entirely comfortable jumping this stuff for these reasons. I mm. see how it could be fixed. What do I do? Am I going to stop jumping because it's taking some of the fun out of it for me? Or 
or what? And I, one of the options was to make my own. Wow. Now, did so, you have a rigging background when you started this? No, none whatsoever. I mean, I, I'd been involved in the paragliding industry for a while and I had access to the ozone paragliders factory. And that's, uh, that's basically the link, you know, that's how it became possible. Wow. So wow. we started, I mean, it's, we started with one model of suit just for experienced wingsuit base jumpers. And that was it. That's in our opinion, that's all it really ever needed to be. It didn't need to go further than that, but mm. somehow it always seems to go further though, doesn't it? I guess. Well, now, what what kind of things were you seeing that that uh, could be improved upon? Obviously, not without pointing any fingers, but uh, uh, for the more experienced jumpers, uh, what things were you seeing in the suit that were making you uncomfortable? Back then, internal pressure was not consistent for a few reasons. So you could be flying along maybe close to terrain and start to have a loss of pressure in one wing, which creates significant asymmetry in the suit. Sure. Maybe your suit would pass through a certain angle of attack that would starve the inlets and you'd have a lack of inflation or pressure in both wings. Also a problem. Um, the pull wasn't always clean. You know, sometimes you would reach for your VOC and find a bunch of fabric. Um, you know, and there, there are other issues too. It's, it's suits have come a long way in the past 10 years. Um, sure. They really have more than most people jumping now can really understand. But, um, you know, there were, there were accidents, there were issues, there were problems. And while all of those accidents, issues, and problems are now around today in different ways and for different reasons, I am really thankful that, you know, not just me, that everybody in the industry has put more thought into making suits easier to fly. Sure. Well, and I, I, again, I, I'll keep referring to Nick and Matt. We discussed uh, um, the fact that it's not good for gear manufacturers to have people going in on their gear. It's just that simple. Uh, you know, so... So from uh, the perspective of not wanting to lose friends and the perspective of not wanting to lose customers, it's never a good thing to have a substandard piece of equipment in our sport. Uh, and I, I say our sport, but again, I'm never going to be a base jumper. I am definitely an outsider when it comes to uh, base jumping, although I understand the draw and the lure to it. Um, did you ever think as you got started with uh, with making these suits that uh, – um, you're going to have some people on there that maybe are, are following the, the wrong steps and getting a hold of a suit that they're not ready for. And, and uh, did you did you try and dissuade people? Did you push to make sure it was only experienced people getting your gear? That's a really interesting topic because, you know, it comes down to whose role is it to police the purchasing of equipment? And sure. you believe that the manufacturer absolutely has some responsibility there. Um, so from the beginning... The process for Squirrel has always been this from the very first the very first orders that our company ever took. You answer questions on the order form, and you can answer them honestly or dishonestly. You place an order, you get a confirmation, but you don't pay. You can't mm. pay for anything until you have a conversation with us. Then we talk. We have a couple couple emails, or you know some sort of verification where we see that yes, you answered these questions, and yeah, it seems like your questions are honest. Sometimes we stalk you, we stalk your Facebook profile or whatever. <laughs> sometimes we know you, sometimes we know someone who knows you, and sometimes we talk. And then we send you an invoice, and then you pay. So it's not like you pay for it, and you're like, woohoo, I paid for my suit. I, sure. I duped these. Right. Um, it's definitely true that um, a couple people have gotten past that in the past of, you know, six years. Of course. We've had some successful liars, for sure. But um, for the most part, we feel good about our process. We feel good about the fact that you know, there's a conversation, a verification before an order is ever placed into production, which happens after you pay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially we do our best. That's pretty fucking epic, really. I mean, um, I've always fallen back to the fact that, uh, that skydivers and obviously base jumpers are an extremely safety oriented group of people considering we do some really stupid shit. Um, but back in the day, um, when I was coming up in skydiving, um, the stiletto was like the most intense canopy you could get out there. And the running joke was uh, that you had to have 500 jumps before you could buy one of these. Uh, and you had to prove that you had 500 jumps with your logbook uh, in order to order it from Paragear or something like that. Um, but you could go in and buy it at most gear stores. And nothing stopped you from buying it from, you know, Joe Blow that's selling one in the, the corner of the hangar. So at some point... 
um, you guys doing your due diligence, you can, you can only do so much. Somebody's going to get a hold of that wingsuit if they want it bad enough. Yeah. I mean, for sure that, you know, the, like you brought up the used or secondhand market, we obviously have no control over. Occasionally we'll get customers that'll email us and say, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about buying this suit from somebody. Can you tell me, you know, when it was manufactured and what his measurements were? And throughout that, that conversation, we find out that, Oh, you know, this is your first wingsuit. Okay. Yeah. You know, the aura three probably isn't the best choice for that. So (laughs) let's, let's discuss this a little more, but Obviously, there are lots of people that don't reach out to us for that information. We don't get to have that conversation, and they do get a hold of something that's above their skill level. And the only thing then that's left to sort of check them is the, you know, their local friends, mentors, drop zone, you know, showing up with a brand new Aura 3 with zero wingsuit jumps. Hopefully, somebody's going to say something before right. they them get it's on the rare, aircraft. It's rare that the community completely lets those people down, right? Like I think one of the best examples of what we're discussing happened last summer where a Brazilian guy who was living in France, apparently as like a member of the Foreign Legion or something, he lied his way through our order process successfully, you know, with references and jump numbers and stuff like that, got his gear and showed up in Lauterbrunnen with a wingsuit and do you have skydive gear? Yeah. Well, yeah, he had a oh. skydive gear and basically zero experience. And a bunch of people talked to him, you know, he got talked off of exits multiple times. People had deep conversations with him saying, bro, this is absolutely suicide. You are for sure going to die if you do this. Mm. It's a fucking terrible idea. It's the worst idea you've ever had. And it's the last thing that you're going to do if you do it. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, you know, basically run out of louder Brunin by the community. People really doing an excellent job of describing to him all the reasons that this was guaranteed death. Shows up in Brento, you know, rides the Brento bus up, right. waits between groups to jump by himself, and obviously, you know, he fucking goes in. So it's not like these people just need, you know, a word of advice. It's not like they need a little bit of guidance. There are too many examples of people who don't listen. They don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. You know, even if they're nodding and saying, yeah, I get it. I understand. Thank you for the advice, et cetera, et cetera. The words aren't getting through. Yeah, no, well, I mean, some people are, that's just it. They're going in one way or another, whether it's, uh, you know, making a ridiculous base jump, they do something stupid on a skydive, they do something stupid on a motorcycle or in a car. Some people just aren't going to listen and they're, you know, it's a one-way trip for them. Now, do you think that uh, um, social media and YouTube and Instagram has a, a big part to play in why people like him think they can pull this shit off? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> it's a loaded question, but um, yeah, I mean, for sure, I, it definitely plays a role in people's decision-making process and, you know, whether they're actually doing it because they want to post that video on their own account or because they see other people do it and it looks so easy. You know, you mm. look at like Matt and Nick are perfect examples. You look at some of the flying they're doing. I look at some of the flying they're doing and I'm like, that looks so easy. And then I go out and try it. It's like, it's not that easy. So it's, you know, (laughs) there's, there's a, there's a balance there between, you know, are they doing it because they want to post it on their own page and get those likes or are they doing it because it looks so other people make it look so easy. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in that dynamic with social media and YouTube and Facebook and everything is, uh, it's complicated and you know, it's, well, it's, and I suppose that when it comes to stuff like, uh, uh, wingsuiting, the, the videos that people are going to see are going to be the ones that are the badass videos because the ones that go horribly wrong never make it on YouTube, you know? <laughs> so people, <laughs> people don't see when someone just completely screws the pooch and ends up going in like this guy in Brento, that's not going to be on YouTube. They're going to see the successful jumps or maybe the ones that almost were that bad, but uh, uh, the pilot managed to pull it off. And then it just looks even more badass to somebody that doesn't know what they're looking at. For sure. The lesson there, that's the most common lesson in base jumping, I think, is that, you know, things go terribly wrong and you get away with it. Mm. That's the lesson that most people learn, because when you learn the lesson that kills you, you die. (laughs) Yeah. a lot of valuable lessons learned by base jumpers half a second before they went in, and those lessons aren't retained or passed on as easily. So it's just, a, yeah, it's. I mean, a, it's a harsh way to look at it, but it's very, very true. And 
I mean, and I'm sure you guys have seen it a hell of a lot more than me, but you can see from the outside the personalities that are aiming in that wrong direction. And some of them are just, they're, they're unreachable. You know, I mean, there's, there's no other way to look at it. This person is not going to, to listen to reason either because they saw that video or maybe they got lucky and didn't learn the lesson from it. Yeah. And back to the original point, it's that if a person is that way, is not always evident before they have their equipment and they're about to practice whatever they're going to practice. Right. It's sure. It's, it's not really possible to see that in advance every time. Yeah. Well, and, and again, Nick and Matt made a great, they gave me a few stories about their preparation. And, and one of the things that they wanted to highlight the most was that, uh, the end result videos that people are seeing do not show all the hard work and all the practice and all the, in their case, the practice in skydives where, you know, you've got a huge margin of safety and, and a lot more room to work. And then Matt tells the story of, of him, uh, prior to a big base jumping uh, day, spending weeks diving headfirst into a swimming pool, practicing their exits because, you know, the water doesn't hurt nearly as much as the trees. Um, all that kind of stuff that people don't see. Um, and it's it's very cool. And one of the reasons that I, I like to be able to talk to them and guys like you is because there's somebody that's listening to this podcast that thinks that they can go pull off that badass base jump with next to no preparation. And hopefully they're listening and going, oh, fuck, maybe I can't. And I think, you know, this is a good time to bring something up is like, you know, jump numbers are not the same across the board, right? You might have, like Matt said earlier in our conversation, you know, you might have 500 wingsuit jumps, but you've been doing it wrong you know, for 498 jumps by yourself at your home drop zone in Oklahoma, nothing yeah. against Oklahoma, but that's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what happens is you get these people that, you know, have the jump numbers, but they don't necessarily have the skills. So it's, sure. it's, uh, it's tough to say, you know, you're not, you don't have the skills to be able to jump this suit or do that. And, um, yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting dynamic between, you know, time in the sport, I think, is probably one of the the biggest things that we can count on. Right. Because if you've been in the sport for 10 years, you've probably lost a friend. You've probably had some close calls and, you know, you've, you've kind of been through the ringer, whereas, sure. you know, somebody with just the minimum bare jump numbers doesn't necessarily hasn't seen those things and hasn't been sure. through all of that. Well, and, and uh, time in the sport, I think actually, I, in my personal appearance, uh, our personal uh, opinion is more important than jump numbers just because you will have seen a lot even if you haven't necessarily experienced it firsthand. Um, I mean, fuck, I've got, I don't know, 11,000 jumps, but until five or six years ago, I was still free flying delivering pizzas, you know, because <laughs> that's the fucking way I learned how, you know, I mean, this was, you know, Olaf Zipser and the boys back in the days delivering pizzas in big old baggy suits. That's how I learned how to free fly. Uh, so all of a sudden everybody's wearing skinny suits and their hands are down by their hips and I'm looking at them going, what the fuck are you guys doing and how come none of that works for me? Well, it's the same thing with the wingsuits and all this, and especially as quickly as your guys' end of the sport is progressing. I mean, this shit is changing almost daily anymore. It's insane. For sure. And there's, so there's basically two things that we've kind of covered. There's the investment, and then there's investing smart. You know, People have to understand that it takes time. You have to practice. But they also have to understand that you have to practice relevant skills and learn from you know people that are heading in the right direction. So, uh, it's one of the things that's amazed me over the past few years, trying to become more involved with education through the next level wingsuit training program is a general, it's a surprising lack of demand for training hmm. in the wing base world. It's to me, it's a little bit discouraging how few people are stoked on the idea of paying for training. Hmm. And so, Which doesn't make any sense, especially when you're considering how truly risky it is. You're yeah. right. It doesn't make any sense. It, it, it's interesting because people aren't afraid to pay for training for other skydiving disciplines, right? Like if you're a brand new jumper, you've done, you know, whatever, 30 belly jumps, you're signed off your student status and you want to learn how to free fly. Yeah, you might go out and try a couple sit fly jumps on your own, but then eventually if you really want to figure it out, you're going to find a coach or a mentor and you're going to go out and do some jumps or maybe you're going to do yeah, some to to the tunnel. some yeah. tunnel time and 200 bucks an hour for tunnel coaching and and think it's normal because that has been normalized, but wingsuiting is like this bastard stepchild of skydiving where, you know, 
traditionally it was nerds who couldn't free fly and there weren't really any rules. You could just rock up to the loading area, see four other wingsuits jumping, whatever equipment with whatever experience and be like, Hey guys, can I come with you? And you know, the other wingsuiters be like, sure, just follow behind us. No problem. And imagine that scenario in free flying at any point in, you know, more than the past decade, right? Like a totally unknown free flyer rocks up to a group of jumpers that have already planned, you know, a really nice head down jump. And that random stranger says, can I come on with you guys? Like, mind if I come along? The free flyers are going to be like, yeah. I mean, if they're really nice, they're going to be like, maybe next time after right. we and a little bit more about your skill and experience. But more sure. typically, there's probably going to be along the lines of fuck off. Are you kidding me? Right. So, flying needs to get to that point. And one of our biggest missions over the past few years is trying to get people to take it more seriously and say, hey, plan your jumps, jump the plan, take other people's skill and experience seriously and don't mix groups inappropriately you know, stick to the plans you make and maybe train the skills you need to do it all safely. Do you think one of the reasons that uh, uh, a lot of the up-and-coming wingsuiters and and especially wingsuit base jumpers aren't uh, looking for that kind of training and aren't willing to pay for that kind of training is because base jumping has always been this, you know, um, James Bondish kind of illegal, I'm going to sneak up here and do all this hardcore shit, who's going to teach me to do this stuff kind of mentality? Yeah, that's that's probably part of it is that the people who are attracted to base jumping aren't the people who are attracted to a very rigorous and structured and responsible. <laughs> sure. There's nothing but examples of that. So yeah, that has to be part of it, right? I mean, it, it's, it's attracting that type of person and we're all a little bit that type of person. Sure. Um, but I think skydiving was absolutely that way. Even when I started, you know, it had more of that feel to it and has come a whole long way. And Clearly, it's it's obvious that uh, base jumping and, and wingsuits are not going anywhere anytime soon. So with any luck, especially with guys like you pushing towards education and, and uh, uh, using your brains a little bit more, it's going to progress the same way. It will become more normalized, you know, and, and it, it'll take time. Maybe one way to think about it is that the current generation maybe can't be changed, you know, but the people who are coming into the sport will see it a new a new option for progress sure, sure. so maybe well, it's I'll that tell you what I, I think us old dogs can learn a little bit too because when wingsuiting first started to become really popular i wasn't working jumping anymore i was a jump pilot and i fucking hated you guys um <laughs> yeah. you guys made my life hell you guys would just stand in the door for days you did whatever the fuck you wanted you kept asking me to go slower and slower and slower and i tell you to stay the fuck out of the clouds and the first thing you would do is make a beeline straight towards the clouds Right. Yeah. <laughs> I hated wingsuiters for the longest time until the very first time I had a competent wingsuit pilot that instead of doing all that stuff was like, hey, what works for you? And I'm going to be going this way and maybe you'll wave at me as I'm leaving. And, and I banked the airplane with him, flying a Pac-750 at the time. And I banked the airplane with him and, and stayed with him briefly. And all of a sudden I went, oh, fuck, that's pretty fucking cool. He's like a little fighter jet guy. And I learned uh, through the course of flying uh, wingsuiters for years now um, really how cool it was. And even though it's not something that I do, I, I've grown to have a huge respect for those that do it well. It's because it's just impressive. That is such a good point that wingsuits are generally a huge pain in the ass to drop zones. And without drop zones, our sport can't really exist, right? Mm. I mean, we, one of the things that we think about is that the, the sport of wingsuit flying is it, you could consider it to be endangered. If you consider that insurance companies might not like continuing to pay for tail strikes, right? Sure. How many tail strikes are we away from insurance companies being like, hey, those wingsuit things don't really work for us? Sure. And then what happens at that point? Well, and there's, there, I think there's quite a few ways in which you could you could get into a bit of a snag, especially in the States, um, with the FAA being what it is. I mean, obviously, drop zones have gone out of their way to piss off the FAA over the years, um, some more than others. And uh, if I'm working as the jump pilot and I know that the local FISDO's got a hard-on for my drop zone and I've got wingsuits that are busting clouds all the time and it's my license on the line, guess what's not jumping out of my plane? Right. Yeah. You know. And there's lots, there's lots of other pain points for drop zones too. I mean, just, you know, wingsuiters landing off, 
cutaways, number of cutaways that happened with wingsuits as opposed to all other skydiving disciplines combined. I mean, interacting with tandems and students. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Long in the door, all that stuff. It's, exactly. So there's a lot, I mean, there's lots of pain points that, that wingsuits create and, you know, our, our mission and goal for the last few years with next level and the education programs has been to, to decrease those and try sure. and uh, make our sport safer and just easier for drop zones, right? Like more jump tickets, less accidents. Yeah, sure. Well, and I know that there's a, there's a, quite a few drop zones around the world that I know of that have pretty strict uh, um, restrictions on wingsuits uh, in regard to, um, the experience level and you've got to have this many wingsuit jumps to jump at this drop zone and you've got to uh, adhere to these rules. Uh, how do you guys feel about uh, drop zones instituting like mandatory training uh, or meeting mandatory um, requirements for each drop zone with in regard to wingsuits? I mean, again, I think everybody, all of us talking here, we probably don't love the word mandatory, but at the same time, we don't love accidents and idiocy either. So sure. there's hopefully there's a there's a balance possible right um oh i would think so for sure we think that as time goes on and drop zone managers and owners understand what the next level education program is about and the wingsuit community understands its value more that training will become more normalized and there will be a greater demand for it so yeah i mean while i struggle with mandatory stuff i i do think that you know people will start consider it like more like canopy courses, right? Like canopy sure. courses aren't always mandatory, but everybody agrees that they're such a good idea. Oh yeah. And- it's well, you know, I, I hate the word mandatory as well. I mean, just like any other skydiver or anybody that, you know, grew up a little outside the norm. Uh, every time you tell me I've got to do something, chances are I'm going to turn around and do exactly the opposite. You know, I mean, that's just kind of the way we are. But um, I, I think with stuff like this, you're right. The word mandatory is a horrible fucking word, um, but there's got to be that middle ground around where, you know, people can have to reach certain standards just to keep them safe and everyone else safe. Yeah. I think, I mean, canopy courses through the excellent efforts of organizations like flight one have done a lot for our sport. And that's, we don't really, we don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? Like we just have to look to that and say, education worked. It's allowed people to progress faster, have more fun flying their parachutes and have fewer accidents that drop zone. So sure. Let's just- well, and it's, it's a great model to, to, you know, take a course for wingsuiting and, and uh, design it after something like that. That's, it's already an extremely well-proven course. So I think you're right. And in regard to the acceptance of wingsuits, you know, I've learned over the years that I went from hating them to tolerating them, to accepting them, to enjoying it. And, and I've got, obviously I've got friends that are world-class wingsuiters now. Uh, I, I liken it to, and this will really age me, uh, back when snowboarding became popular. I was, I'm, I'm a skis guy. I've been on sticks my entire life. So when those fucking kids on the snowboard started plowing down my moguls, I hated them. You know, <laughs> how, how dare you mash down my mountain? And of course now there's more snowboards than, than skis and I'm the old fucker that's still on skis. Um, but this, you know, this acceptance and then this appreciation of it uh, changed dramatically in skiing. I have a feeling that the same is happening uh, even faster uh, with skydiving and wingsuiting. Um, I, th- I guess the only time I ever wince when it comes to the wingsuits is in what you guys got started in the, the proximity stuff scares the shit out of me, not just for myself, but because I've lost a few friends now to it, uh, as I'm sure you guys have too. And uh, it's a tough mental balancing act because we all know how damn dangerous it is. Um, how do you guys and how, to, how, to, how, does, how does the family handle um, that part of your passion? First, I got to say that your snowboarding and skiing analogy is perfect for even more reasons because the ski industry said for years in like the late nineties that snowboarding saved skiing, you know, in the eighties skiing was, was declining. It was sure. sales rating worse and worse every year. It's just nothing cool about it. But then snowboarding kind of reinvigorated the industry. Skis got fatter, you know, ski fashion got cooler following the lead of snowboarding, et cetera. And both industries kind of flourished. And nowadays, you know, there's organizations like, you know, the Australian parachute federation, for instance, is they understand that, wingsuits are driving the growth of skydiving and a lot of drop zone owners can attest to the fact that people show up to do tandems saying i want to do the wingsuit thing so you know who knows wingsuiting hopefully will have a net positive effect on skydiving in the long run 
Well, I think it will, if for no other reason, just because uh, they've once again thrown skydiving and now especially base jumping back into the limelight, um, where skydiving has definitely become very mainstream and almost, um, I don't want to say boring to the general public, but it's not shocking anymore. Uh, But, you know, you see somebody flying, you know, two meters off of, uh, you know, a mountain and staying there, it's mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely done a lot for the sport. I think over the past ten years. Yeah. So back to how how do you guys and how do your family deal with the the risk involved and the passion that you guys draw from this and and the fact that you've pretty much dedicated your lives to it? Um, I mean, for me, my my main focus these days is is skydiving, the wingsuit base and proximity flying. Those those days are pretty much behind me, ninety nine percent, and. Uh, it's just as much fun for me to go out and, you know, either lead a group of students or, you know, fly with Andy and Matt on a, a day up here at the Kapausen drop zone. So it's, uh, you know, perspectives change, priorities change, families grow. And, uh, sure. for me, you know, the, now skydiving is more fun than base jumping. It, it lasts longer. It takes me, you know, five minutes to pack my parachute and I can do it 10 times in a day, no problem. Whereas, sure. you know, wingsuit, wingsuit base jumping, it was a lot more commitment. And for me these days with a real job and <laughs> having <laughs> a company to run, you know, time is valuable. So if I can go out to the drop zone and bang out four or five jumps, like that's, that's great for me rather than, you know, a full day wingsuit base mission. So sure. those are. Now, was the, was the risk involved in the base jumping part of the decision to back away from it? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, that always plays a factor. I think it's, you know, you get to a point in any career sport where it's still fun. You still, you know, I still enjoyed it. But for me, the risk wasn't worth the reward. And sure. it was only a few years prior that, you know, it was the complete opposite. And so it's, uh, you know, definitely that that factors into it and being current and doing it more often and having more time like those those are all factors that play into a decision to you know to back off something sure well and and you're you're far from the first person uh, that I've spoken to that was that deep into that type of stuff that has backed off dramatically if not completely and uh the the passion for that just kind of uh ran its course I guess they they would say um more than anything because and one in particular told me that uh, everything that can happen in a positive way already has. I only see negative potential ahead. Um, so why do it? Um, which, you know. With regard and, to wingsuit terrain flying or something? Yeah, with the terrain stuff. And even even Matt and Nick said that they've backed away from um, the, the terrain stuff to um, really start diving into more... Um, expressive ways of flying but not necessarily right down the terrain and and doing a lot more vertical stuff and and i get to see them doing some intense stuff out of the aircraft all the time and they've just thoroughly enjoyed uh being able to fly the suits in dramatically different ways than you can when you're just heading down the mountain yeah i mean it's definitely about playing in the mountains and the how we play with the terrain and all that is is, is shifted over the past few years i definitely agree with matt and nick that you know, the future is clearly not trying to fly closer to stuff. Does that make you guys happy? For sure. I mean, we were, I think, I mean, we played a role in publicizing that type of flying over the past few years. Um, you know, we, we definitely have a lot of friends and team members who are into proximity flying, but, you know, big mountain freestyle flying with like the advent of the freak back in 2015 right. um, has been something that we've been the most excited about. Well, and there's so many different avenues that it can go now. The the things that you're seeing, seeing between uh, uh, the vertical flying with the suits and XRW and all this is just, uh, I think the 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 creative element is limitless at this point. For sure. Yeah, and I mean, you know, even now, I mean, just just being proficient at back flying and you know going and jumping off a high alpine exit and and back flying and enjoying looking back at where you came from is. Hmm. For me, I mean, almost as cool as, you know, dragging your toes through the, the weeds and uh, and ripping down a line super close to the ground. So it's, you know, the perspective of the sport is, is sort of changing. And after you've done that a few times, you understand that there are so many variables that you can control. But like anything, there are variables that you can't control. And, you know, whoa, I didn't know there was a, you know, an avalanche wire across there. The 
tree fell overnight and now it's in the middle of my line or, you know, there's a bird or a goat. I mean, you know, all those things are real things that have happened to myself and other people in the mountains. And, you know, you don't have control over those things. So I think that's the well, point that you can, you can not jump. You can yeah, that's true. But certainly there's there's variables. I'll tell you when I when I publicize all these uh, podcasts before they go, I I usually try and take a little blurb from each one and and uh, use it as a post as a teaser for the podcast. And I got to work in almost hitting a goat <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I mean, and again, I'm a bit of an old dog when it comes to skydiving and and having never base jumped. I made the conscious conscious decision not to base jump because uh, I was going to become a dad. Uh, and this is also back when base jumping, it wasn't if you got hurt, it was when and how bad. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case now. Uh, I think maybe it would be different now, but back then it, I just decided not to. So I can't fathom what it's got to be like to be down that low flying like that. I mean, man, there's just no room for error. You've got to be so focused. It's got to be an incredible experience. It is fun. Um, People, people say very, I think the most common refrain about terrain flying is there's no margin for error, right? Like it's the, it's the, it's the most common response from people who know and people who don't know. And, you know, I, I don't think that's entirely true from having thought a lot about it and from having been deep in it for a long time. Um, I think that there are ways to practice it where you can fly close to things and, you know, your margin comes from the way you're flying and if you're doing it right the simplest way that I can explain it is that it takes effort to be close any relaxation or reduction in effort results in a rapid separation from terrain wow so okay if you're doing it right and you have the energy retained and you're at the correct speed and angle of attack a very slight movement results in a massive separation so Instantly, you could be at deployment altitude, you know, within half of a second, you could be at a deployment altitude at any point in your terrain flying line. So it's not like if you're doing it right, you get into these situations where you're just completely fucked from one tiny little mistake at any right. point for the entirety of the jump, right? Um, usually, when people die, it's the result of a series of errors. Of course. It's, a bunch of little things that add up as with anything in aviation as you know even better than i do but um so that's where the margin comes from the margin comes from setting yourself up to experience that margin with any reduction in effort and making sure that you're not on like mistake five sure at that point one Sure. Well, and, and I'm guessing, uh, and uh, again, with, with Nick and Matt, they said the easiest way to avoid those situations is just to know when to jump and when not to jump. For sure. Um, or what you'd want to think that I, I stress over and over to people is that it's a conditioned sport and the best way to not jump in bad conditions is to not hike up or go to the exit point in bad conditions. Because once you're there, you know, for me personally, if, if the weather's not good and I hike several hours up to the exit point or I make the trip and get there and whatever, it's the last day of my two week vacation in Europe or whatever it is, which that's typically referring to other people since I was living there. But, you know, if you're on the exit point and the conditions suck, 10 times out of 10, you're probably going to give it a try because it beats hiking down. You know, you came all this way. Well, and the you're anticipation, the temptation, it's all there. Yeah, I mean, I was on Baffin Island once with Jimmy and, and, uh, and he's like freezing our asses off on the exit point. And he said, if you told me that if I jumped right now, my parachute would just be a pure block of ice and probably wouldn't open, I would jump anyways, because it might open too, you know, as opposed to <laughs> out in the cold. It's like, I'd still go, because it might open. <laughs> Fucking hell, man. <laughs> it must have been cold. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot, a lot of people find themselves in that situation where it's like, yeah, it sucks, conditions aren't good, but, you know, I'll probably be okay. I, I, I might just live. Sure. And the best way to avoid that situation is just to not go to the exit point in the first place. Choose your conditions wisely and only hike up if you know it's going to be good. So know the weather, know the conditions, know the site. Yeah, no, I would think that, that those would be the, the, the biggest things just besides, you know, proper gear checks and all that. Just knowing the conditions and, and where you're at's got to be the biggest thing. Knowing the line you want to fly and having planned your dive big time. So 
you you get somebody that uh, uh, is listening to this podcast uh, and all they want to do is go do this kind of stuff. Um, what's your advice to this guy that's never made a jump before? What should be his progression? Uh, what should he be thinking about instead of just trying to get his hands on a set of wings? Skydive a bunch. Cool. Skydive a bunch. Um, keep skydiving. Skydive some more and you know link up with people who have a good bit of time in the sport who have hopefully a reasonable outlook. Um, don't learn from your significant other. Don't learn from people who just learned yesterday and, and understand that there are things you don't know that you don't know. Hmm. Don't learn from your significant other is a damn good piece of advice. <laughs> it's And it's not one that most people would give, but it really is a damn good piece of advice. You can't have all that emotion and that uh, um, anxiety that comes along with a relationship and a learning experience. It just... It's, just, it's bad on both sides, especially if the relationship is young. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. There's, yeah, I, I couldn't even fathom. There's no way in hell. Well, and to add, learning with a significant other plays a major role too, right? If you and your significant other get into a new sport together, a lot of times that can lead to, you know, somebody that's in it for the right reasons, somebody that's in it for maybe not all the right reasons, one mm-hmm person progresses faster one person progresses slower but they both want to do that you know special trip to wherever to go base jumping i mean it's there's there's lots of factors that play into that as well but uh yeah taking a slow progression and you know really learning from people that that know what they're talking about and you know that kind of goes back to what i was talking about earlier you might have somebody at your drop zone that has 500 wingsuit jumps but those 500 wingsuit jumps, you know, maybe 450 of them were over eight years ago. And so the technologies changed, the uh, equipment's changed, the, you know, the teaching techniques. So learn from somebody that really knows what they're talking about, you know, with current gear and, and is, uh, you know, part of the leading edge of the sport because there are a lot of people out there that may have been doing it for a long time, but they might not necessarily be the correct people to learn from. Or the best sure. people. And in the end, I encourage everybody to think about the fact that base jumping is also a solo sport. There's no instructor or mentor or experienced friend who can save you, Hmm. right? Every jump is a solo jump. You're on your own and you have to understand what personal responsibility means. So I think a lot of time people get roped into feeling comfortable around their mentors and comfortable around their instructors and people who say that they're going to be okay. That's super dangerous. Sure. Well, and I hate to say it, but uh, uh, I mean, in skydiving, you can find yourself in a situation that's a bit sketchy and and, uh, fumble your way through it and maybe you're going to be okay. But you don't really have that luxury when it comes to a base jump. You can't lose your head in that situation. You've got to have proper training in the right reactions. And the other reactions, they have to be natural and the results of experience and training. We don't default to our level of skill. We default to our level of training. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and uh, if the training's not up to par, then the results are not going to be favorable for sure. So in regard specifically to your guys' suits, um, you've got a number of different products. Tell me about them. Oh, boring. Go to squirrel.ws. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So have you got stuff for, say, somebody like me that wants to get into it slowly? You've got uh, uh, entry-level stuff, intermediate, advanced. You've got the whole whole kit. Yeah, we got all that stuff basically from your your first jumps to winning the world championships. Nice. Now I don't see that in my future, but uh, you never know. I might end up in a set of wings someday. Uh, so what's the what's the website? What's the Instagram? What's the Facebook? Where's everybody need to go to check this stuff out? Squirrel.ws will get you to all those places pretty much. Squirrel.ws. Okay, and you guys are based out of uh, Kapowson. Yeah, Seattle, Washington. Oh, that's fantastic! It's beautiful up there. Seeing Rainier and Freefall. Oh, good stuff. Exactly. Well, any parting words, anything you want to say to everybody before we head out? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate the time and uh, it was fun talking with you. Absolutely. I'd definitely like to check back in in the future and, and talk more, maybe get uh, more nitty gritty into the sport and, and uh, find out more of your opinion on everything that's going on in skydiving and its progression and, and uh, what comes next. Again, thank you Thanks, so much, you. guys. Appreciate having you on. Thanks, Dean. See ya. See ya. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually, brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. 
by Summit Parachute Systems. Check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving. Go to FlyawayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the LunaticFringePodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.